doing? We're about to start the podcast. Rob, we need to talk. Andy, I did not know it was a family heirloom. I've told you, I'll replace it. Oh, it's not about that. This is about money. Money. Hmm. You know I'm really bad with finances. And Rob, that's why we need to talk. You need an accountant. Hmm. You're probably right. But is there anyone you could recommend? Actually, I can. I use Quantify Accountants in Bondi Junction. Have you heard of them? Quantify as in quantify? No, quantify as in quantify. Q-U-A-N-T-I-P-H-Y. Look, they're terrific. A medium-sized four-partner firm who specialise in tax advice and compliance and retirement and investment advice. Look, they also have other divisions like mortgage broking and superannuation division. And they're just above the interchange in Bondi Junction. They're maybe not hip, but they're definitely modern. So what was the spelling of that name again? Quantify. Q-U-A-N-T-I-P-H-Y. I hope that's not another family heirloom. Quantify Accountants, proud sponsors of Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. Welcome to Series 2 of Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. My name is Andy Bromberger. G'day Andy and I'm Rob Caldor. Rob, I just want to do a bit of a recap on how Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast, and then Coffee, Cake and Culture, the actual form, came about. So about 10 years ago, I noticed that people love classical music, people love going to concerts, but I really wondered if people actually knew anything about the music they were listening to. Do they know the political, the social, the historical events that caused the music that they were listening to be written? So I started a series called Coffee, Cake and Culture where people come to my house and I demystify classical music for them. And as the name suggests, coffee, cake and culture, each of these classes start with a piece of homemade cake. So Rob, Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast started when you posted on Facebook that you were now podcasting and I rang you up and suggested we do this adventure together. And so what we do in Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast is look at various aspects of classical music together. And although there's no eating of cake for all of you out there, Rob does indulge at the end of a session. And I discuss a cake that goes with each of the classes. But you know what, Andy? Everyone knows that because they've all listened to Series 1. We're we're in Series 2. But look, for the few of you out there that haven't listened to the whole of Series 1, don't despair. You can go back. It's sitting there on Apple podcasts on Spotify on the website have a listen to series one start with series two I don't think it's the end of the world if you start now because we've got some pretty crazy stuff planned so Rob when we did series one we looked at what music is what is the makeup of music so we're now in series two we need to think about what we're going to talk about in this series Andy as you know I know very little about classical music but I do enjoy my desserts. What's happening today? Let's just get into it. Okay, so in this series, we're going to look at the instruments of the orchestra. We're going to look at the sections. We're going to look at the string section. We're going to look at the woodwinds, the brass, the percussion. We're going to look at some strange instruments, some instruments that are sometimes in the orchestra and some instruments that, Rob, you've probably never heard of. And then finally, we're going to look at the importance of the conductor. But today we're starting with strings. And so I had to think of a cake that works with strings. Mm. 
I'm excited. <laughs> and Andy, I like I'm a good eater, but I know a lot of people are also quite keen on making the cake. So how do they find out what the recipe is? Okay, so the recipe the recipe for this cake, which is a vanilla butter cake, is on my website, coffeecakeandculture.com.au. And you may be wondering why for this series I'm starting with something as basic as a vanilla cake where in series one I was looking at, at cakes and biscuits from Italy and from Argentina and from all over the world. The reason being is that a good orchestra is a good orchestra if it has a fantastic string section. A good baker is a good baker if they have a fabulous vanilla cake recipe. Vanilla cakes are one of those things that everybody needs to have in their repertoire, just like a good orchestra needs to have a good string section. And if you think about it, a string section can sound romantic. Well, then make a Victorian sponge cake, which has luscious cream and strawberries in it. Or a string section can sound playful, have your butter cake, your vanilla cake, and add chocolate bits, or add hundreds and thousands, or add colour to it. Then you've got a playful cake. Or a string section can add sound spicy. Add chai tea to your vanilla cake. Mm. So what I'm saying is that just like a string section, which can have so many different characteristics, so can that basic butter cake. Andy, I'm sold and I can already smell something cooling from the oven. So let's talk strings so I can eat. <laughs> Definitely. Rob, as I said, the orchestra is broken up into these families. And the biggest family is the string family. And the string family consists of the violins, violas, cellos and double basses so four sets of instruments but if you look at a string section there are actually five sections because in a or an orchestra you have violins one and violins two then you have the violas the cellos and the basses so our modern orchestra which started in the classical period and the classical period is roughly 1720 or 1730 to 18 10 or 20 so this is the period of Mozart of the period of Haydn which is when the orchestra that we know it really comes about it comes about with two sets of violins first violins and second violins basically the first violins playing the melody and the second violins playing the counter melody the violas playing the harmonies on the whole the cellos playing the bass and the double basses as the name suggests doubling the bass part. So that's how we have our modern string section. And what's interesting is that although we have that as our modern string section with a predominance of violins, that's not how it actually started. If we go back to the Baroque time and we look at a composer by the name of Lully, he was the composer who worked for the court of Louis XIV. And he's one of the really important guys in actually forming what we now call the orchestra. And he really liked the viola better than the violin. And so in his ensembles, he had an abundance of violas compared to an abundance of violins. Can we have a bit of a listen, Rob, to a little bit of Lully? 
It's interesting that you brought up the viola first, because when you were listing the members of a family, I was thinking viola, middle child syndrome. I wonder if it's neglected, because I, I don't hear of people saying, I play the viola. It's always, I play the... You're absolutely right. <laughs> and sorry, interrupting you there. And I apologise, viola players out there, but there are so many viola jokes. And they often, they are often the butt of jokes when it comes to the string family. So it was interesting listening to the lully there. It was a bit deeper than mm. my, like when I think string, I think quite high pitched, which I know is obviously not always the way, but I was thinking violin. Yep. And this was not that. So it was, I could say it was quite jaunty. Absolutely right. You can hear that middle voice sounding much more dominant than the top voice. And it's interesting that a lot of composers really, as you're mentioning viola, um, loved the viola. Beethoven thought the viola was a fabulous instrument. He loved it too. But when we think about the string section, and we are now in the Baroque period talking about Lully, the strings as we know them actually came about in the Baroque period. Prior to the Baroque period and at the in the early Baroque period, the major type of strings weren't violins and violas and all those sorts of instruments at all. In fact, there were a family of instruments called the viols, V-I-O-L. And they also had a family, so they had high viols and low viols, just like the string family. But this instrument was a much more rustic sounding instrument. It was much less refined and much less beautiful than the stringed instruments we have now. They often had six strings rather than the four of the string family that we have now. And they didn't have the ability to have that solo sound that we associate, say, with violins, as you mentioned before. When we move from the Renaissance period into the Baroque period, and we talked about this in the last series, Rob, how in the Baroque period, it becomes really important to have this solo line. The viols weren't going to fit that solo line, as well as a new type of instrument that comes about in the Baroque period, the strings, the violins that we associate with an orchestra today. I'm now going to play you a little bit of a viol consort. So this is these instruments of the Renaissance and before. And what you're going to hear are the whole family. So higher ones and lower ones. I can imagine a king or a queen with this in the background having a chat whilst off with his head. That kind of, <laughs> but I mean, it was, it, it's interesting to think of different shaped string instruments mm. to what we're used to and a bit bigger. And I like it's a bit of the origin of the species kind of thing. That's right. It's interesting you say that because they say that even though there is such a similarity between the viols and 
our stringed instruments, that they are actually a different species. The violins didn't morph from the viols. They are actually a different species. So it's oh. interesting that you actually use that terminology. We're now going to look at all the instruments in the string family. But what we see, and I'm sure most of you have seen the instruments in the string family, you'll notice that there is a great similarity in all of them. They look like they are a family. The, they have a lot of similarities in their looks and their sounds and the way they're played. So what I'm going to tell you about are some of those similarities, but actually some of the differences too. So if we think about a violin, a violin has a beautiful shaped body. It's shaped with almost like the perfect curves of a woman with a long neck with, and on the top of the neck we have what we call a scroll with four pegs that hold the strings and then those four strings are pulled down the neck of the instrument onto the body of the instrument and held in place towards the bottom of the instrument. And on the instrument itself, we have these two beautiful holes where the mm. sound comes out. And the instrument itself has these this waist mm. in it. And I hope that is a good explanation. No, and, and, <laughs> just for the listeners out there, Andy's doing lots of the sexy arm movements <laughs> of body shapes. Very 50s and 60s body shapes, I would say. But I think we know what we're talking about. I'm interested in the audio, how people hear the music through the whole, because that to me I always wondered about, is it a design, the way it's shaped, or is it just... That's such a good question, because yes, it is designed, but there is one very important aspect to this. Have you ever wondered about the shape of that waist? Have you ever wondered why it has that tight, nipped waist besides the fact that's what women have to have in those well, days i've thought about that shape for a lot of my <laughs> a lot of my time but not with regards to the violin so tell me more if you think about it just think about this you've got an instrument under your chin and you've got an instrument being held with your left hand and a bow with your right hand and you have to play those strings with your bow now if you had an instrument that was a box shape how are you going to be able to play that bow and move that bow from one string to the other? You're not going to be able to because you're going to hit the sides of that box. So the reason we have this nipped in waist on the stringed instruments is so you can get around those strings so that you, can, you have the ability to go from that low string to that top string without actually hitting the instrument. So it's effectively an ergonomic thing. Yes. Isn't that interesting? It is It is interesting. I've always wondered with violin players, especially what goes on with their neck, because it looks like an uncomfortable position. Totally, totally. And if you speak to physios and violinists and violists, they will tell you that they have great neck problems because they are at a very bizarre angle and they're holding up this weight with just their neck and their their left hand. In fact, the neck is meant to hold, their, between their chin and their shoulder is meant to hold the whole instrument. Their hand is just balancing it so it has the dexterity to play the different notes. But if we think about the strings on the violin, the string, there are four strings. So unlike the viol, which had six, they have four strings. And they are tuned to a perfect fifth in between each of them. So the strings, the lower string is G, then D, then A, and then E. And this is what they sound like. 
Andy, I've heard that before in orchestras tuning up. I imagine they do a bit of that. They do a bit of that, absolutely. And also those Suzuki people out there when they've played and you hear all that all the time. So those strings are very important because they are the, the fundamentals, I suppose, of the sounds of the violin. Now, one of the important things is what are those strings made of? Oh, it's a good question, Andy. Um, I do, I'm not sure if I'm getting my tennis mixed up if it's cat gut or not. You uh, are absolutely right. Like, I wonder who came up with that one. Let's go through the various animals and let's see what we can find. It's funny because we call it cat gut, but it's actually not. It was sheep gut. Okay. So I don't think there are any cats murdered in the name of violin playing or string playing. But in the in the Renaissance time and early with those viols, as, as well as moving into the period of stringed instruments, until the 19th century, they were played with a gut string. And a gut string was a piece of sheep gut. So the sheep gut is dried and twisted and stretched to make a string. And in the 19th century, when technology advanced, they started using metal strings. And so today they use metal strings rather than gut strings. So if you listen to an early music orchestra and they are using gut strings, you'll hear a sound of the, of the strings that is actually different from an orchestral sound. It has a much more mellow sound, a less vibrant sound and a softer sound on the gut strings than on the metal strings that an orchestra would use today. Okay, so in in this more woke era that we're in, people can be assured that no animals were uh, killed in the making of violin string. No, you're absolutely no, because when they play a traditional like a, a baroque, early music, they are using gut strings. People are playing modern music from after the romantic period or are playing on a modern instrument yes you're absolutely okay. right but if you were to go to an early music concert and they are playing original instruments they are playing gut strings okay okay you're okay with that I'll continue because i do have the cake coming up. okay because you are not going to be happy with the next bit either which is when we talk about the bow oh okay yep uh, Face my fears, Andy. Because <laughs> <laughs> a bow, now you may think you, you've seen a string bow and you may wonder why it's called a bow because it doesn't really look like a bow and arrow bow. But if we go again back to those original instruments, the bow looks a lot more like a bow and arrow bow. So if you think of a bow today, you have the hair on the bottom and then you have a stick that goes down. But... In the olden days, instead of the stick going down towards the hair, the stick actually came up. So it was more like an oval. Okay. Looking a lot more like a bow, as in a bow and arrow bow, hence gotcha. the name. Now, have you ever wondered what the hair is made out of? I've been in denial. I'm, I was assuming it would just it came that way. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. It just materialized. Yeah. It was just born that way. It is horse hair. Okay. Okay, so there are horses running around minus some of the hair on their tails. What happens is that as you play any of these stringed instruments and you tighten the bow, so the bow is quite taut, and it plays against one of those strings, the horse hair has lots of little fibres that stick up and they catch on the string. And that helps to produce the sound and vibrates and helps to produce the sound. 
Is it only horses? Could you go with donkey? Could you go with zebra? <laughs> That's a question I don't know. In Europe, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, zebras were pretty low on the ground so yeah. I don't think there was much call for zebra donkey I'm not really quite sure mm. of but when we look at the double bass some double bass players most string players as you see play with white horse hair some double bass players play with black horse hair and some double bass players play with they call it salt and pepper a mixture of black and white because they say that the black horse hair is actually thicker and more coarse and grabs the string better. And when we talk about the double bass, I'll talk about why that's important with double bass. Interesting. And Andy, there's another thing that I've noticed from my uh, violin friends when I was at school. They also carried around, I think, a resin. Ah, yes. So it's called rosin, not resin. and But it is the sap of a tree. And it has this very distinct, fantastic smell. And what they do is they rub this rosin up and down the hair on their bow. And they rub it up and down so much that there's actually a mist that comes off. And what that does is it helps with the sliding of the hair on the string. So if you don't have the rosin on the string, it's sticky and screechy and doesn't sound nice. You can actually physically hear and then when they rosin their bow, it has this much more, it's almost like a lubricant. Yeah. And smooth playing on the bow. Okay. A Andy, this is educational for me. Let me just tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's good, isn't it? I'm also interested in the whole organic nature of the instruments. Everything's organic. Everything comes from the earth. Even if we're going into that, the whole instrument, and in fact, all the instruments of the string family, then have a varnish that is on top of them, makes it shiny. And the varnish actually affects the sound. So every aspect of the making of this instrument affects the sound. The shape of it, the woods that are used, the back of the instrument, the front of the instrument, the strings, the hair, everything makes this instrument sound the way it does, which is why every violin, every stringed instrument sounds totally different. If I put out in front of you 10 violins of various prices and got somebody who can play the instrument and played them all, you would be able to hear a difference in the sound between one instrument and another. They are that different. They all sound like a violin, but some might have a more bright sound, some might have a more mellow sound, some might be this some might be that and so if you are a string player and you're going to go and buy a new instrument you go to a violin shop and you might try hundreds of instruments before you find the one that fits you best using a silly analogy if we look at harry potter when harry potter chose the wand he there was that wand that fitted him best it's pretty much the same with all the instruments of the orchestra. Interesting. It's very personalised. It's very personalised. I think now we need to hear a little bit of violin play. I think so. Thank you. 
Andy, the phrase that comes to mind when I hear that is heart strings. I felt the emotion in that solo piece. It was a whole whole range of things going on. Do you think there's a link? Because the strings and the heart. Oh, I would have thought so, yes. Because playing the a stringed instrument, I think that you're absolutely right. That, yeah, if you think of pulling the heartstrings, yeah, I've never actually thought about it like that. But there must be a correlation between that saying and the pull of those strings. You're absolutely right. The emotion you feel when you hear beautiful stringed playing. The raw emotion, isn't it? It's... Especially in, in that piece where it was just, who was that? That was Bach, was yes. it? So it, it really taps into something, especially when it was just one. It was like nearly someone talking about their love or desire or something like that straight away from the get-go. Yeah, it's amazing that you feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose when you hear a solo instrument, you probably don't usually hear a solo violin. You're usually in the, the realms of a quartet or an mm. orchestra or something like that, or even with a piano. So just to hear it like that, almost naked, mm. you really do hear that intense quality of the instrument. Now, you may also have heard sometimes that there were two or three notes being played at once. They're called double stops and triple stops, where basically what the player is doing is playing two or three notes at once by putting their fingers in various places on the strings and then playing with their bow many notes at once. It's nearly like a chord. It's like a chord, exactly like a chord. So when we have the stringed instruments, they can play chords and intervals as well as just playing single notes. Now let's move from the violins to the next group of instruments in the string section, and that's the viola. Okay. Now the viola is a bigger instrument than the violin. And it's a couple of inches longer and bigger than the violin. And this makes an enormous difference to the playing of the instrument because it's a much more cumbersome instrument to play because when you're putting your left finger from one note to another note, because it's a bigger instrument, the space between those fingers is a lot greater. And because it's a bigger instrument, the thickness of those strings is greater because it's a lower sound. It's five notes lower than the violin. Here's what the strings sound of, of the viola. Yeah, I could hear it's deeper. I wonder if the the physios get more workouts from viola players versus violin players. I would imagine heavier and longer. I am absolutely sure. And it's really interesting because instrument makers have tried for centuries to make an instrument that is more ergonomic, as Mm. the word you used before, something that's easier to play. But they haven't been able to do it and still have that beautiful viola sound. Now, I'm going to play you something now. I'm going to play you a little bit of cello suite, but I'm going to play it for you, first of all, on the viola and then on the violin. And so you're going to hear the difference in sound between the violin and the viola. (laughs) 
and you can definitely tell the difference. As you said, it's like the, there's a bit more depth in the viola sound, mm. but a bit more nimbleness in the violin playing. Oh, beautiful, beautiful words. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. The viola has this sort of intense mellowness, while the violin has this innate dexterity to it. Playing the viola is a much more physically demanding and difficult exercise than playing the violin. But the violin has a lot more technical difficulties. Like music is a lot more technical and on the whole viola playing. And if a violin and a viola, this is when things get really tricky, when a violin and a viola play together, the violin has an immediacy about it. When you hit the string with that bow, the sound comes out straight away. You play the viola, there's almost lag, a tiny, weeny, almost imperceptible lag because it is a bigger instrument. So the violist actually almost has to anticipate that microsecond in front of the violin so that they sound like they're playing together. Now, that doesn't mean that when the viola player starts, they go, okay, I've got to start quicker. It's something that is innate, you learn it. But that's what you have to do to make sure that you're actually playing together. So there's a lot more depth to playing the larger instrument, the viola, than the violin. Gotcha. Let's have a little bit of a listen to some viola playing. if I were to come back as a string player I'm a viola kind of guy I feel like the violinists are like the prima donnas they're like they're they're, they're like the attention the violas are the hard workers of the orchestra (laughs) of the string section as I have a lot of good friends who are both violin and viola players I make no comment (laughs) Uh, uh, okay well you can always let us know on our Facebook page which side are you, viola or violin? But coming back to the music, I actually thought there's a depth to it. Maybe it's that those uh, is that five notes lower. Yes, five? yes. There's a bit more depth to it. It's not as obviously it's not as high pitched and the yeah. I feel like there's more depth. I totally agree. Now let's move to the next one. Okay. We're going down to the cello. Ooh. Now the cello is an octave lower than the viola. Okay, the names of the strings are the same as that of the viola, and here are what the strings of the cello sound like.
cello is this beautiful sounding instrument. I think, Rob, if you were to ask most musicians what instrument they could play if they weren't playing the instrument that they are playing, mm. most of them would say the cello. It's like cello sounds like it's everyone's best friend. Totally. And it's a perfect description of it. And when you play the cello, you're hugging your instrument. This is the thing that you spend mm. more time with than anyone else in the world you sit on the chair with the instrument between your legs and you are hugging it it's almost an emotional physicality when you play the cello and when you see cellists play their instrument you can almost see the love so i i like to me cello it feels like an even relationship while the violin and the viola it's you're working for me kind of thing you know you're holding it you're controlling yes. it while the cello it seems a bit more symbiotic yes that's a perfect again a perfect explanation to it yes and the interesting thing about the cello and the way you play the cello is if you see modern cellos they have a spike in the bottom of the instrument that goes onto the floor. Mm. So the instrument is being held up by the spike and the spike is lodged into the ground. But again, that's a quite a novel and new idea that started in the 19th century. Prior to that, and even the instruments that sort of came about before the cello, we have an instrument called the viola de gamba, we have an instrument called the viola bracca, which was actually played more like a violin. But all these early cellos and the early, the Baroque cello, plays with the player actually holding the instrument between their legs. There's mm. no spike. So the whole instrument is being held up between their legs. It's not touching the ground? Not touching the ground. Okay. I would imagine bringing it back to physiotherapists, I imagine less issues with cello players? Yes and no, because the cello also, they tend to have to lean into the instruments mm. and they have to carry it. Mm, that's true. So it's a big instrument to carry and... They still have to hold that bow, which actually with a cello is actually a smaller bow than both the violin and the viola because of, of again, the physics of the instrument. But, yeah, you know what? I think you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone in the orchestra who doesn't spend a lot of time at the physio. Okay, fair enough. So with the cello, if you look at the actual look of a violin and viola compared to a cello, a cello has a bigger bum. That's because... The bum is was initially being held up by the legs. Don't get anywhere near a an early music cello player because, or their legs, because mm. the muscles in those middle thighs is huge because mm. they're holding up this instrument. But the cello is really one of the most beautiful of instruments. Just the way, same way as we love hearing tenors sing. There's this beauty about the tenor voice. We have that same sort of feel when we listen to a cello the phrase coming up in my mind is warmth there's a warmth about it i totally agree let's have a bit of a listen to some cello playing we're going to listen to two bits of cello playing rob we're going to listen to a little bit of beethoven so late classical cello playing and then i'm going to play you a bit of modern cello playing when i say modern i mean 20th century cello playing because i want you to hear the difference between these two types of playing and also with the the Beethoven it's a sonata so I want you to listen to how the piano and the cello work together
So Rob, that's Beethoven. Now let's listen to Cordae and you'll hear the difference again with a solo cello plate. Now, did you hear that sigh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so when I first heard this sigh, I thought, oh, come on, what are you having a sigh for? Now listen to how hard this is. This is one of the hardest pieces written for the cello. I'm imagining like that is the most incredibly difficult thing to play because of the size of the cello. I feel like you need to nearly have muscles and dexterity. And there are a whole lot of different styles that the player was using from the bowing to mm-hmm. a bit of, I think, is it called pizzicato? Yeah, so he was doing pizzicato. He was doing strumming. He was doing pizzicato both with both hands too. So pizzicato on the string at, the, at where you would bow and also pizzicato up the top where you put your fingers so pizzicatoing with both hands so yes that piece of music is insanely difficult and that poor cellist deserves that big sigh at the beginning because that is an absolute workout it nearly had rhythm as well which i know when we spoke in series one about bass there's Mm. a fine line between bass and also its rhythm element that's right and you can hear it's amazing and i think that this is probably what you were talking about when you were listening to the violin part the violin the bach to start is that it's amazing when you have a solo instrument how that solo instrument can give you both the melody, the harmonies and the bass all within that one instrument or that one element. And we talked about that when we looked at harmony last series. But I think both of these examples really show you that. Andy, I feel like we're building to something. It's like the beginning of a sporting game where they're introducing each member of the team. <laughs> We've got one more to go. I don't know. I won't, I won't forget the big fella. <laughs> mm. We do. We have one more to go and that is the double bass. Now, the double bass is obviously the largest of all the instruments. It's about six foot in height. When I was a little girl and at school, I would sometimes, we'd play hide and seek and I had been known to hide in a double bass case. Those of you who know me know how short I am. That was a very easy thing to do. So the double bass is this huge instrument. And Rob, I'm going to show you a photo of a violin and a double bass. And I want you to tell me the difference, the major difference in these two instruments. Andy is opening up her stringed photo album (laughs) where, and I'm putting on my detective glasses. Okay, Rob, here is a photo of the violin, viola, cello, and double bass. Tell me 
the big difference between the other three and the bass. This is a musical version of Where's Wally. Yes. Has it got something to do with the tuning pegs? Nope. Is it slightly, is it the actual, the sound? Nope. The bottom, the strings? Nope. Look at the actual, the shape of the instruments. It's a bit rounder. The bottom's bigger than the top. Yeah. Have a look at the, the shoulders of the violin compared to the shoulders of the double bass. Okay, so it's not rounded. That's exactly okay. right. But it's more slumpy. Exactly right. Now, so the violin, the viola and the cello have nice rounded shoulders, while the double bass has sloping shoulders, very sloping shoulders. Why? Because if you are playing a double bass with big round shoulders, how are you going to get over those shoulders to actually be able to play the strings down low. Gotcha. Again, an ergonomic piece of design probably exactly. evolved over time. It has to have those slopey shoulders so that you can get and play those higher strings near near the area where you bow. So isn't that an interesting thing? And, it, and I have to say, Rob, I show those pictures to many people and very few notice the difference. So no, I don't feel bad that I'm up with the other people getting it wrong. That's right. Um, Double bass is a really interesting instrument. First of all, because you would think that the bigger the instrument, the bigger the sound. That would make... But as we talked about when we looked at the bass in the last series, the bigger the instrument, the softer the sound. So let's hear now the strings of the bass. Certainly, it certainly is deep, Andy. It's very deep. And not only is it deep, it's the violin has a very direct sound, while the double bass has a much more muted sound is probably a better word, a muted sound. And that's because the strings are so thick. Now, if you look at a double bass player's left hand, the calluses that they have on their fingers from pressing those heavy, thick strings all the time are remarkable. They're mm. just because it is such a physical thing to do to push those strings down. And there are a whole lot of other aspects of the double bass which are different from the other three. Now, the other three instruments are all tuned to a fifth. But if you notice, the double bass is actually tuned to a fourth rather than a fifth. And this probably comes from those viols all the way back in mm. the Renaissance. And remember at the beginning, I also said that the strings, the modern strings do not come from the viols. It's a totally different family. Mm. The only instrument that we think may have evolved from the viols is the double bass, because mm. there are many more similarities between the bass viol and our own double bass. Also, we talked about the fact that with the double bass bow, sometimes they have the white hair, sometimes they have the black hair, and sometimes they actually have a mixture of the two. Mm. And again, when you're playing an instrument that has such thick, heavy strings, you need a hair that has got enough fibers that's really going to catch that string. Mm. And that's why they sometimes use black horse hair rather than the white horse hair. 
and there's another very major difference in that some people play the bow like the violin and the viola and the cello. We call it overhand. Mm -hmm. And some people play underneath and they call it the German or the butler bow. And the difference is just, again, trying to get the best sound out of this very difficult instrument. So let's now hear a little bit of the double bass. imagine there's that many double bass orientated pieces. So that piece of music is written in the classical period and Dristoff was actually a double bass player so mm. he had a vested interest but you are right that it's as we move into the classical period into the modern era that we have many more solo double bass pieces written you're absolutely right but you can hear how it has that sort of muffled sound to it rather than the directness of the violin so they are the four instruments of the strings and to finish up rob i'd like to play you a piece of music for all those strings so we've now listened to each of them individually i want to play you a string ensemble piece so that you can hear how they all work together by the name of Janacek. And I could hear all the elements, even the viola. When you hear a string ensemble together, you can hear that they are a family. There are these differences, as I've pointed out. The similarities outweigh the differences and the family as a whole sounds absolutely beautiful together. And I think that's one of the reasons why the string section is so fundamental. 
it is the biggest section and it's the biggest section first of all because it's the founding part when orchestra started they were the string section and occasionally some winds and brass thrown in for added effect but I think that the importance of the strings is so great that a good string section can really make or break a great orchestra. Andy, I think everyone's upbringing involved hearing bad violin playing as people were learning the sort of screech and it's great to hear the instruments being played as they were intended. I've learned a lot and I'm, I'm ready to hear more but I'm also ready for something else. (laughs) A little bit of cake, maybe? I I think so. So listen, thank you for today. I hope everyone's learning a lot as much as I have enjoyed listening to it and listening to your insights and questioning where things come from. Where are we heading? What's happening next podcast? Okay, so next podcast is one very dear to my heart as being a clarinetist. We are looking at the Woodwind family, and that is very different from what we've just been looking at. It's a whole different part of the body being used to play it, so it'll be interesting to hear. Andy, for everyone out there, please let everyone know about this podcast. You don't have to start from the get-go. You can pick it up at any time, although I do recommend going back to Series 1. If you like us, especially on Apple, please rate and review us because it means that more people get the opportunity to hear it. Fantastic. Yes, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Rob. Please rate and review. Enjoy and send questions if you have any. And we will see you for the Woodwind section next time. Thanks, everyone. See you later. podcast has been produced by etales.com.au that's www.etales.com.au does your company or organization or even yourself need a podcast contact rob at etales.com.au